All right. If you have a Bible, grab your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Our attention uh, is on verses 27 and following. And if you're new to the Bible, we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. This is a safe place to learn how to read and understand the Bible. And if you don't have one or if you don't have an ESV, which is the version that our church uses, you can grab your mobile device, punch in Acts 21 ESV, or we do have uh, print copies available in the lobby. You're welcome at any time to get up and grab one of those. Uh, But you will want to have the passage in front of you, Acts 21. We have 43 verses to cover this morning as we keep making our way through the, the, the tail end of the book of Acts here. 43 verses. They do tell a thrilling tale. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we stopped right in the middle of a really exciting episode. All of this is 100% true. It all happened. It's all divinely inspired and, orchest- and orchestrated. The Apostle Paul, here's what happened. The Apostle Paul has arrived in Jerusalem on his way to Rome with a financial gift for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, but his reputation has been smeared before he even arrived. And there are many now, inciting a crowd as you'll see, there are many who are lying in wait and have a plan to capture Paul when he shows up. So this is what we learned a couple weeks ago. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem hatch a plan. They hatch a great plan to win Paul some favor with these Jewish folks that are trying to take him down. Now we're about to see if their plan succeeded or not. Let's see. They schemed. Did their scheme work out? Let's find out. Acts chapter 21 beginning in verse 27. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 22 verse 29. And then I will pray. So, Acts 21, 27. Follow along. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. 
And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, chapter 22, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, 
but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You made it. The very words of God addressed to us this morning. Let me pray that God would give us understanding. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would have ears that are ready to hear, minds that are prepared to understand, and wills that are ready to bow and submit to what you would have for us in this passage. So Lord, would you help us now to both comprehend, treasure, believe, and obey your word. Give me strength, spiritual strength, through your spirit that I might preach to my friends in a way that builds them up in their faith. And be glorified by uh, what we think about this text and what we in response to it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if Jesus Christ was rated, rated for his skill as a salesman, I don't think he would receive very high marks. And I mean no disrespect, but here's what I'm talking about. This is the offer that Jesus makes to those who follow him. Matthew 10, verse 16 and following. Here's what he says. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Behold, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, which means prince of demons, a nice uh, moniker for somebody, how much more will they malign those of his household? Where do I sign up? I'm ready. Sounds like a blast. The passage we just read in Acts 21 and 22 bears a striking resemblance to the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 10, doesn't it? (laughs) Striking resemblance. Jesus described what would happen to his disciples, and lo and behold, it's happening, and it isn't pretty. It isn't pretty. It's hostility. It's hostility. Paul is being treated with hostility. He's come to Jerusalem. Here's, Here's what he's come to do. He's come to give money to the poor, he's come to encourage the church, and he's come to share the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is offering forgiveness and peace with God at no cost to those who repent and believe. Those, those three things are what Paul has come to do. And as thanks for coming to do that, he's maligned, mistreated, and mugged. He's experiencing what Jesus promised. If you follow me, the world will turn against you, right? No, so no big surprise. In fact, Paul had been receiving predictions from the Holy Spirit that he, this is exactly what would happen when he arrived in Jerusalem. This was, this was no surprise. If you follow Jesus, the world will turn against you. 
And here I'm using the world the the way the Bible does. The world is those who are opposed to God, those who wish to live in a world without God, a, a world that God does not rule, and who go on living as though he doesn't rule. The world is at odds with God, and therefore it's at odds with those who follow him as well. So hostility towards Christianity is no surprise, regardless of whether a Christian is wise or kind or compassionate. Hostility against Christianity is no surprise. That's what these disciples are facing. That's what you and I will face as we remain faithful to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we should retreat from the world, right? In fact, God calls us to live in the world for the world. He intends for us to live out our days in hostile territory, loving our enemies for his glory and their good, that many would be saved. That's the call. But it's hard. Hard to live in hostile territory not comfortable, doesn't put you at peace. We live in hostile territory, right? Every Christian has. It's not unique to us. But in our day and age, it has its own unique flavor. I mean, for us, basic, basic Christian beliefs are well out of style in 21st century America. The things that Christians have always believed and taught and sought to live out are offensive to the modern mind, outdated, regressive, Everything from our belief in one God and one way of salvation through Jesus to the very heart of the gospel itself, the thing we've been singing and celebrating all morning, that each of us is a sinner, deeply in need of forgiveness, at odds with God in our natural state. That is not a popular thing to believe. And it goes on down the line to our ethics, how we think of gender expression and sexuality and the sanctity of human life, offensive to the modern mind. Being a Christian, it was not one of the records. If you ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, being a Christian was not on his list of how to win friends and influence people. This is a hostile place for Christians, but hostile is normal. No time to panic. No time to get angry or fearful. It's not time to flee to the mountains, even though we're going to the mountains next week. We're not fleeing to the mountains to build a, another Christian society out there away from all the bad people. No. Look, we live in a world that's against us. But in that world, in a world that's against us, God is for us. In a world that's against you, God is for you. That's precisely what this passage illustrates. The world's against Paul, but God is for him. Same with us. Let me show you how this plays out in this passage. Two headings, two points. I'm going to take you through this. Obviously, it's a ton of text. I'm going to leave much unsaid and up much unmentioned, but just two points I want to make from this text. I'll give them to you as we go. Point number one, how can we see that God is for us in a world that's against us? Point number one, God chooses our challenges. God chooses our challenges. If you remember, Paul and the leaders in the Jerusalem church have tried so hard to spare Paul from the very things that are happening in the text. (laughs) They've schemed, but their scheme fails spectacularly. I mean, in the verses prior to this passage, back in chapter 21, the Jerusalem elders had hatched this plan for Paul to get into the good graces of these Jews by having him take what was called a, a, a Nazarite vow. Basically, what had happened is this crowd had come to believe a lie that Paul is out there teaching Jews that in order to be Christians, they have to forsake their Jewish traditions. 
And they're furious about it. He's tr- they would say, he's, trying to, he's out there telling people that in order to be Christians, you have to get rid of your Jewishness. Now, that would be like me telling you, in order to be a Christian, you have to stop being an American, if you're an American. You got to stop being an American, all right? No more hot dogs, no more hamburgers, no more apple pie, no more American flag t-shirts, no more Fourth of July parties, or baseball, or football, or democracy, or freedom. You have to get rid of all of it, now that you're a Christian. Well, that would be a big blow, right? How would we survive without those treasured icons of American culture. Is life worth living if you can't eat hot dogs in an Old Navy American flag t-shirt on the 4th of July while watching a baseball game? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not, I don't think you have to get rid of those things in order to be a Christian. I won't, don't want to deprive you of those, those wonderful uh, uh, tokens of God's love. Uh, <laughs> And Paul wasn't trying to deprive Jews of their cultural traditions either, even the cultural traditions that had religious significance, which is kind of hard for us to, to, to reckon with here. But Paul, Paul takes a Nazarite vow. This was something prescribed in the Old Testament that we would say at the coming of Jesus, these kinds of things were no longer required or needed. Paul knows that these Jewish religious practices don't make a person more or less acceptable to God. But we see he also was not on a mission to purge every Jew of their Jewishness in order for them to become Christians. But that's what many have come to believe. And the lie is just spreading like gangrene. The elders in Jerusalem, they know this. They're quite aware and they instruct him to complete this vow to show that Paul isn't opposed to Jewish traditions and practices. And he does. And we pick up in our text right as he's finishing the seven days of uh, of his vow. Unfortunately, a, a group of Jews that have been following, around, following him around on his missionary journey, they come into town and they stir up trouble. So look back at verse 27 of chapter 21. Here's what happened. The seven days, the seven days of his vow were completed. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. And as you saw in the text, the narrator, Luke, goes on to point out that they saw Paul with a Gentile named Trophimus and just filled in the blanks then. Oh, he must have brought him into the, tem- uh, into the temple courts inside in the holy place where the Gentiles weren't permitted, even though Paul did no such thing. <laughs> as we all know, if you want to be upset, you can find a way to be upset. You can find reasons to be angry. That's what they're doing. We, we're upset. We've got to find reasons to support our upsetness. And so they make the facts fit their assumption, stoking their rage. And so we read in verse 30, all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. In other words, the scheme that they had come up with to stop this from happening has absolutely backfired. It's so disappointing. It was a good plan. It was a really good plan. Okay, Paul, do, do a Jewish tradition to show them that you're not against Jewish traditions. It doesn't work at all. It was a good plan. Good plan. Why doesn't it work? I'll I'll answer that in a minute, but first, I want to skip down in the passage because there's another failed scheme in the passage that I want to draw your attention to. Chapter 22, 
Paul's long, long speech to the angry, angry mob. I can't go through it line by line. It's a great monologue where he describes his life before becoming a Christian and how committed he was to Jewish tradition. That's what he's trying to get across. Then he details his conversion story, and then he talks about his commissioning be a minister of the gospel. He's attempting to win the crowd over. First, he does this by literally speaking their language. Chapter 22, verse 1, brothers and fathers, which is very endearing. So he's trying. He's this honey on the tongue here. He's trying to be persuasive. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Good start. Good start. They quiet down to listen to him. He speaks in their native tongue to get their attention. Then he speaks at length about his Jewish background and his zealousness for Jewish traditions. Verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the laws of our father, being zealous for God. And then an affirmation, as all of you are this day, right? He's trying to be nice. These people have just beat him. In verse 4, he talks about how he too persecuted Christians, and he's now joined them. Verse 4, I persecuted the way, Christians, to death, binding and delivering to prison men and women. As the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, everybody knows this about me. Even people they would respect, they know that I did this. And then he tells his conversion testimony, road to Damascus experience. He talks about Ananias, who is another well-known, devout Jewish Christian who spoke of him, of his commission. None of this upsets the crowd, by the way. Not even the, the post-resurrection, post-ascension appearance of Jesus. The crowd is not upset by that at all. They don't get angry until he mentions the Gentiles. Verse 21. And he, Jesus, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then verse 22, up to this word, they listened. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. How dare Jesus send you to the Gentiles? We knew it. We knew you were, you were anti-Jew. We knew it. And this is the proof. Again, it's just confirming what they already believe. It was a fine speech, all right? A very persuasive speech. There's a part of me that'd be tempted to be like, here's how you talk to people that are angry at you. This is a great example of how to deal with people who are angry at you. But, but in a way, it's not because it did work. They're still angry at him. The scheme and the speech, neither of them were able to spare Paul from this unfair, unwarranted, unjust persecution. He's already in chains. He's already been beaten. He's about to be flogged. And just so that we understand, this flogging is not like a couple taps on the back. A lot of people died when they were flogged. This is a cruel and dangerous form of punishment. Now, why is he in this position? Why did the attempts to wriggle out of this fail? And to answer that, you can't look at Paul or his companions. You can't look at the crowd. You have to look up to heaven. Paul couldn't wriggle out of this. 
because God had chosen this path for him. God chose these particular challenges for Paul. He chooses the particular challenges that you and I face on account of our faithful witness. He determines the kind of suffering and difficulty we will occur, uh, we will endure on account of our association with Jesus. For instance, but just for, for instance, a lot of you are parents here. I'm a parent of two young kids, eight and a five-year-old. If you're a parent, you love your children deeply. You do your best to care for them and train them. You bring them to church. You teach them to trust in Jesus. When they reach, and then when they reach adulthood, they reject you, and they reject your faith, and they accuse you of being a bad parent. Most of us will likely in that moment be tempted to think this must be because of what either I did or because of what I failed to do. That, that's the reason. That's really what's behind all of this. And of course, some self-evaluation is warranted. There's no perfect parent besides God the Father, and, and all of us people who aren't God the Father would be wise to humbly observe and admit our faults. But, but much of what we endure is because God has chosen it for us. You can't draw a straight line from everything you suffer to something you did. Just can't. Much of what we endure is because God has chosen it for us. You share the gospel with a coworker and you get reported to HR and lose your job. That's not a failure. Doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It might feel like you did. But suffering doesn't equal failure shouldn't surprise us that our witness for Jesus results in pain and difficulty. In fact, if we should be surprised by anything, we should surprise when we don't suffer. <laughs> we should be surprised when things go well, right? But, but we're, we're just not wired that way. It's just hard to get ourselves out of that mentality. We're usually surprised that faithfulness doesn't result in immediate fruitfulness, right? Oh, I was faithful. Where's, where's the good stuff, Lord? Okay, I did what you said. Now get, give me the goods, Hardship, opposition, apparent failure, and that's important, apparent failure. These are normal for Christians, even when we've done what God has called us to do, especially when we've done what God has called us to do. Doesn't mean, like I've been saying, it doesn't mean that we don't try to avoid trouble. Again, take their example. They're trying to avoid trouble, trying to keep Paul out of trouble, and rightly so, trying to be wise, trying to be shrewd and innocent like Jesus instructed us to. But God, for his own reasons, decided that this kind of trouble was the right kind of trouble for them. And here we are studying it and benefiting from it ourselves. We don't need to go out looking for trouble. We just need to be faithful to the calling that Jesus has given us. And that calling is, no matter what you do, every Christian is called to be a witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, calling anyone who will listen to repent of their sins and believe in him and follow him into everlasting life, whether you're teaching that to your little kids that you're at home with or your coworkers or your family and friends, your neighbors, whoever will listen, being witnesses to the death and resurrection of Christ. And we accept that whatever challenges come as a result of that are good in ways that we can't yet understand. So, so don't despise the suffering that God calls you to. Here'd be another one, actually. Don't make the things you suffer all about you. 
I feel this temptation. This must be about me. This is about something I did. God calls us to suffer for his glory, his purposes, his plan, his mission. He chooses the challenges. All right, point number two. After God chooses the challenges, he also, point number two, God determines our deliverance. God determines our deliverance. Paul is saved from the angry mob, but not in the way anyone expected or schemed or planned. According to verse uh, 23 of chapter 22, the mob is shouting at Paul. They're throwing dirt in the air. And I read one commentator. It was really funny. He's like, yeah, they would have thrown mud, but they lived in the desert. So there was no mud. So they just throw dirt. <laughs> Perfect. That's why. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> ah, that's so, uh, that's got to be unsatisfying if you're an angry mob. I'd really want something more substantial to throw. Throwing dirt, demanding that he be executed. So this thing has just escalated, right? It just, it, I mean, so quickly this has escalated. It's now a community crisis. There's civil unrest. Verse 23 of chapter 22, look there with me. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That's not a test you want to have to undergo. Okay, well, let's beat him really hard until he tells us what's going on. That's uh, one way to get answers, I suppose. A uh, barbaric way to get answers. So they're going to examine him by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they'd stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Okay, Paul sees, uh, again, after the mental psychological anguish he's feeling. It is amazing to me that he is so clear-headed in this moment. He's about to, again, potentially be killed. And, he, and he's like, okay, here, here's my opportunity. Here's my moment. Remember, th this is him being shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. That's, that's what he's doing. It's unlawful for them to detain a Roman citizen like this. And so Paul uses that to his advantage. Look at the next verse, verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune comes and says to him, Are you a Roman citizen? Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large subsidy. There's no way you're a natural-born citizen and obviously you don't have any money. So you couldn't, have bought a, you couldn't have bought a Roman citizenship like I have. Paul says, well, I'm a citizen by birth. So, end of, the, of our passage. Those who are about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. All right, so here we go. Paul is escaping the next stage of suffering he was about to endure. This was not part of his plan. His plan was the vow, and then when that didn't work, his plan was the speech. That's how he was going to escape the crowd's wrath. But God offers him another way of escape, and he acts both shrewdly, right, cleverly, wisely, and innocently. It was shrewd, very shrewd, to mention his Roman citizenship right at this moment. But it's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong because it's true. He's not lying. He hasn't been withholding information. But he perceives that God has given him an obvious way to halt this unjust proceeding, to spare him from some serious pain, and then, of course, to provide him more opportunities to spread the gospel. 
That's what he cared about. God determined that this, this is the way that Paul would be delivered from this particular trial. Doesn't mean this will happen for everyone, but this is the way that God determined Paul would be delivered from this particular trial. I think when we read this passage, we're, we're tempted to think that like Luke, the author, really, that this is like an ode to the cleverness of the Apostle Paul. Oh, if you could just meet him and see how clever he was. And it's not, though. This is not an ode to the cleverness of the Apostle Paul. This is a testimony about God's wise protection and preservation of his people for his purposes. That's what this is. A testimony. A testimony of God and the ways that at times he will intervene to spare his people and, and enable them to continue being his witnesses. God determines what you'll suffer, sure, like we already said, but he also determines what you'll be spared from. And listen, through, through the cross, through the cross of Jesus Christ, we've already been spared from the greatest suffering, right? The suffering that we actually do deserve. Paul, Paul didn't deserve to be treated like this by these people. We've been spared by God from suffering we deserve on account of our sins. For at the right time, God sent his son into the world to deliver us from the penalty of our sins, even when we weren't looking for it or asking him to, to do it. He determined that our great deliverance would be through the substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of his son. He delivered us from sin and death and hell and all at his determination. And he determines every lesser deliverance too. Look, we always have the deliverance of the cross to thank God for. Always. Like we've done this morning. Always have the deliverance of the cross to thank God for and all that we will enjoy because of it. So much good comes to us through that bloody cross. We should thank God for it every day, multiple times a day, as often as you can. Lord, thank you for the cross. But we can also pray and expect that God will deliver us in many smaller ways too so that we can do what he's called us to do. I've quoted this before. It bears repeating. This is probably not the last time I'll quote this. We don't know who coined it originally, but it's a great sentence, a sentence to put in your back pocket. It goes like this. We are Christians. We are immortal until the work God has for us to do on earth is done. Right? No, nobody, nobody can pull you off this earth before God has determined that it's your time. You're immortal. God will deliver you from all kinds of suffering and pain until the work he has for you here on earth is done. Like we prayed earlier for Dan, and we thank God for the ways that he, God has been battling Dan's illness. Many of us will be delivered from sicknesses and persecutions and pains and hardships. We pray. We can't wait to celebrate those with you. Those will come at God's hand and in his timing. Look, God may work through. He will. He's going to work through our intellects and our planning and our cleverness. Sometimes he's going to work through those things. 
and sometimes he won't. Sometimes he'll just work completely independent of us. He's not reliant on us at all. So sometimes he'll work through you. Sometimes he'll work in spite of you. It's his prerogative. It's on us to believe that he will do it. It's on us to trust that the things he chooses for us are the right things. It's our job to ask him for deliverance over and over again. Knock and knock and knock and seek and seek and seek. And then it's our job to wait in faith until he does. And then when he does, to praise him for it. That's our role in all of this. The world is against us, okay? I don't say that to make us all scared. Just acknowledging the situation we're in. The world is against us. This world is not our home. In fact, God's saving us from the world. That's what's happening. The world, the flesh, the devil work tirelessly to stop you and I from living for Jesus in our homes, in our cities, our workplaces. That's just the reality. That's the situation we're in. And we should expect there to be many difficulties. Deserved, undeserved, all kinds of difficulties. But though the world is against us, you better believe God is for you. Uh, so just as we end, take heart. Take Take heart as you prepare for this coming week. I don't know what God has in store for you. Some blessings, some burdens, some challenges, some great joys. But any hostility you and I face this week, ah, I pray that because we know God is for us, uh, we would face any hostility with humble, holy, and perhaps even happy hearts. That's what God offers. Humble, holy, happy hearts, even when there's hostility. So let me pray that that would be true of us. Lord, if we're honest, we're intimidated by the prospect of pain and difficulty and hostility. Intimidated by the fact that people we love may resent us. This is hard. Hard to face. But we know that our Savior has faced it before us. Now, he, he faced all manner of undeserved hostility, and he did it for us. He faced the ultimate hostility he didn't deserve. As you poured out your wrath on him on the cross, wrath he did not deserve, but he faced it so that we could be spared. And so we rejoice in that and say, Lord, give us the strength to be like Jesus who when he was criticized he opened not his mouth but loved those who even were against him saved those who were against him us included we pray Lord that you would help us this week to follow after his example and to be humble, happy holy people even when life is hard Help us by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.